And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is being recorded on June 24th, 2022. Kevin Martin is the head of tree collections at the Royal Botanic Gardens Q, having joined in 2012. In his role, he is charged with the curation and management of Q's unique and historic collection of trees from around the globe for the purpose of scientific research and conservation within a UNESCO World Heritage Site landscape. Kevin has a foundation degree in culture and is a track certified tree inspector. He also sits on several boards, including the Arboreta Advisory Committee for Westenbert and Begberry. Kevin is also the vice chair of the Cultural Group for the Apprenticeship Trailblazer. Also a member of the UK Botanic Garden and Arboreta Collections Consortium. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Kevin. We're delighted you could be with us today. Yeah, I'm very grateful that you've asked me to appear on your uh, podcast. You're a very special person because you manage special collections at Q, And we are so thrilled that you could be with us today because Q has one of the most renowned collections of trees in the world because of the hunters, the plant hunters that brought trees to queue. We're wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the collections and how you wound up working at queue. Okay, so for me, I've had a bit of a different journey to my career at queue. So most people that end up in my position at queue usually come through the queue diploma and they do the queue identified horticultural diploma, which is degree level, and they usually come through there. So they come and never leave. For me, I'm a little bit different. So I was a commercial arboriculturalist. My father was an arborist. So I've grown up with trees all my life. All I ever wanted to do was to be an arborist. So I went away to college and trained to be an arborist. And then I was a commercial arborist for about 12 years before I started at Kew. And I come to Kew because of the last recession, we had a real reduction in work. And there wasn't a lot of work going around in the UK after the banking crash in 2008. And my wife saw a job at Kew to be an arboral cultural supervisor. So anyway, my wife persuaded me to send in my application. Application got accepted and I got an interview and I, yeah, I was here at Kew as an arboral cultural supervisor. Um, I was only a supervisor for about six months and then I got made manager of arboral culture. So I did that for my first nine years. And then after the retirement of um, Tony Kirkham, I then, last year, I become head of tree collection. So I'm now in charge of the curation as well as all the tree risk management and overseeing the team. Tony Kirkham had quite, quite a reputation too for being a Q and was well-renowned in the field. Yes, completely. Yeah, so I've taken over the reins from Tony Kirkham. So, yeah, I was, they changed the job title. So I'm now head of trees. It used to be called head of Arboretum. It quite likes the change to head of trees because, as you say, I want to, you know, it's my time and I didn't want to be compared to Tony all the time. He did 41 years. That's a long time at Q. So, yeah, so we've changed the name to head of tree collections now. So were you at Marist Wood? Is that where you did your uh, arboriculture studies? So I originally started at Sparshop College. I was down in Winchester. I then, when I come to Q, I was here at Q for about... 18 months and I went and did what is ABC level four diploma and I went to Meriswood then. So I've done both colleges as it were. I've also studied at Myers Co. So for me, I've studied at all the educational centres that do our board culture in the UK or the main three. That's a, that's a nice portfolio for you. 
He is, yeah. Lots of experience, met lots of people along the way. And you could draw on that information, which is really wonderful. And also those resources that you have. Yeah, I'm very fortunate. Yeah. And to be fair, being at Q alone allows you to have lots of resources. Could you give us a sense of how you approach your job and your responsibilities on a day-to-day basis? Yeah. So I was talking to someone about this the other day, and I have to wear lots of different hats. So I used to do all the tree risk assessment using track. You know, I built tree management app here based on track. So I was very lucky to work with some developers and we created a tree management system. Everything for us here at Q is based off track. Sort of phasing that out now, my arboral cultural supervisor is now carrying out the tree risk assessments or hazards assessments now rather than myself. So for me, I still do all what we would call consultancy level. So I still do all the detailed tree inspections, things with PCUS, and resist the graph. So I still carry out that side of stuff. Also do a lot of the planning applications. So Kew Gardens sit within the conservation area of Richmond upon Thames. So if there's an event on, for instance, or any construction to be done, I carry out all the consultancy and draw the plans on, on CAD plans for tree protection zones and manage the method statements for construction. So I do that. And then there's the nice part of my role, which is the curation. So we're just doing a big audit of the living collections. We're getting a good way through it now so we can understand what tree we have and why we have them. And we can understand how these trees are growing to look at future species selection. This morning, for instance, I was keying out limes. So, you know, I can be keying out limes one morning and writing it all up on the database. And then the next day I could be out doing a PCUS. Oh, that's interesting that you're talking about limes. And just in case our listeners don't know what a lime is, we're talking about tilia. And uh, ours are in bloom right now. I was sniffing them last night as I was walking past. They were so delicious. The fragrance is so wonderful. Now that you're looking at curation, how do you determine what you want to add to your collection? Yeah, so this is the exciting part. So, you know, we've got to look at climate and we've got to try as best as we can to have a, you know, a sustainable landscape. So I'm doing various different projects. I'm working with Dr. Henrik Showman from Gothenburg Botanical Gardens, and we have started a long four-year research program now to look at species and species selection, but not just the species, but to look at the provenance of the seed in which we collect and start eco-matching. So a lot of my work now is getting species which could lead into this research. So currently, when I'm looking at the collections, I'm looking also, coming from a practitioner's point of view and not just a collections management point of view, I can look at how many work dockets, for instance, for removal of dead wood or mortality rates of each species and then start to compare them to where their provenance are. So we're starting to find quite a few key indicators that... The drier areas are like the Caucasus, especially in Iran. A lot of the tree species which were collected in Iran in the 70s are actually well adapted to the London climate, especially Kew. So Kew's quite a dry site. So we're on subsoils, Thames gravel and bagshot sand. So I have a very high leaching point. So the trees become drought stressed quite rapidly. But the trees we're starting to notice from the Caucasus and going into the Mediterranean climate are definitely adapting a lot quicker and are establishing a lot better here at Kew. And I think limes are going to be one of those trees that are going to be trees for the future urban canopy. They're very well adapted here at Kew. And out of all our trees, they're probably one of the most successful species along with oak. So it's just identifying key areas for us now to really research in detail so we can understand why and then try to push the collections so, as we all know from Q, with all the historical plant collections we had, especially from the Victorian era, they were very much for horticultural merit. So we would collect a tree because it's got a really pretty leaf or because it's got really attractive bark. And we can't do that now. We need to start thinking about the climate more and if it's suitable to grow here at Q. Through this audit, what I've been doing is mapping tree species through Google Earth Pro. So we've got eastern and northerns from the wild collection points once I've mapped them, I can, I'm mapping lives and deads, and they're starting to be a trend, for instance. So I went to Japan, plant collected in 2013. We've collected Japanese maples along river ravines. They're not establishing, and that's because through evolution, they've grown there with water, available water all the time. And then I bring them here to chew, stick them in the middle of the Acer collection, it's dry, 
full sun and then we wonder why they don't establish. So it's picking up those trends and it's very quick to see where we need to focus our collections for this site. We've, we're very lucky, we've got Wakehurst, so we can spread our collections over the two sites. I think that's where we need to be better aimed at as we move forward as a tree collection. And I was going to say Wakehurst has a wonderful collection also. I've, I've been there and I was amazed at the uh, really amazing winter interest that you have there at yeah. that garden where not too many people concentrate on winter interests, but if you have a really cold area or an area that doesn't get a lot of rain in the wintertime, those, I guess, would be some of the characteristics that you're looking for. Yeah, completely. And this is the interesting thing is before we go collecting now, we're, we're trying to look at climatic data and see what the participation and the heat is before we decide to go collect there. So from beginning of the research, from roughly working out through queue and the way the weather is here in London, it will be more akin to the mountains of Azerbaijan with the heat and participation. So it's then looking at that area of collection. As all people who are into plants, we all get very excited about new species. We need to remember we've got a heritage landscape we've got to manage also. I went to the University of Reading, so I'm wondering, they have a really good meteorology department, and I'm wondering if you ever consult with them as far as looking at trends with meteorology. Uh, we haven't yet, but definitely it'd be something to look at in the future. We need to have a better understanding. And I think this has been the very difficult thing in the recent years is to be more joined up with other research institutes and rather Q try to do everything themselves. Um, I think that's a bit of a historical thing, but yeah, it's a really interesting point. So we, we've just got some funding from DEFRA, from the UK government, and we're just using uh, soil moisture sensors, but we're also using accelerometers just to measure trees under wind lows, and that's part of just Dr Justin Moak's work in GIS here at Kew. So I'm the tree expert on, on his study, and it's going to be really interesting to see what rainfall we get and it's recorded. To another note to that, um, the new curator of Living Collections here, Simon Toomer, I was having a chat with him and I've managed to get a conversation with um, Dr Andrew Hyron. He's been doing a lot of irrigation tests with sap flow sensors. So the plan is to set up a study in the Arboretum with young trees which are planted and then irrigate some and not irrigate the others and then watch the stress. So we can identify the stress with sap flow. For obvious reasons, when you get a reduction in sap flow, you've obviously got a reduction in soil moisture. So with the soil moisture sensors and the sap flow, we can then start to look at how these trees are going into stress and how much irrigation we need to give the trees for establishment. So that's another project we're trying to get off the ground. That sounds really interesting. You mentioned that you're getting to work with Dr. Heinrich Schiomann yeah. from Sweden. Yeah. We've been trying to get him on the podcast, and I periodically look at his enormous database, you know, based on, I can't remember how many different variables that he kind of started to prioritize. These are the urban trees that Europe and even North America need yeah. to consider uh, as we move into, you know, historic uh, changes with our weather. Can you talk a little bit more about that, how that partnership came to be? And Yes. Originally, I got involved with the project with Dr. Andrew Hirons from Myersco, and uh, that was part of a TDAG document which was built, which was created by Andrew to give landscape architects an idea of what species to plant. So that was all based off his original PhD. So leading from that, we then did a paper I was part of with... Uh, Andrew and Henrik. And we basically, what we did, we was testing the turgid loss point of leaves within the arboretum. So we was testing 10 different species, we tested the turgid loss point, and then they were ranked. And then from that paper, you could then look at trees which are more appropriate. So we're going to work together, um, basically looking at how we can use tree collections to understand future species selection for the urban environment. So that, that's going to be using multiple things. So again, using turgid loss point of leaves, but also sap flow as well. So we're going to use the sap flow and moisture set, and then just look at how these trees cope with climatic change. The plan eventually is to use the Millennium Sea Bank as well. We're going to try and identify species that we believe would be the best to deal with climatic change. But it's looking further and looking them from a genetic point of view and then look at where we get the material. So 
ideally we would like to get trees from across their whole range all the way through from the wettest to the driest and then grow them on as saplings and then start testing them so then we can especially in the nursery we can turn the irrigation off and see how those trees adapt and change and then we can compare the trees so going forward that's where the plan is is to try and not just look at the species alone but look at their provenance and see if we can find tree prove the theory really that if you collect a tree that's just clinging on to life and really stressed is more able to adapt to environmental stress than a tree that like i said earlier i've collected from the side of a river so it's just putting the data behind what we all see as a theory so that's a, going to be a project now over the next three years do you ever integrate plant material from other botanic gardens that may be ideal for your setting instead of just exploring yes interesting you ask so as i was saying i was doing an audit and we've got a lot of surplus plants so they've all gone out through to other botanical institutes and gardens in the uk so we do pass around genetic material we have a very good relationship with western burt and bedsbury they're close partners but also edinburgh so when i went plant collecting in japan back in 2013 i went out as part of a team from edinburgh in the gardens in the UK, we all work together through the Plant Collections Network, which is all the Arboretum and gardens, they all link together. So what happens within that group is someone says, right, I'm going out to China, but I need another pair of hands. And then rather than one organisation take the financial hit and the risk, we all would say, right, I've got a member of staff that can come. So then when it's a multiple organisational trip, rather than just a single trip on our own. And that works the best, I think, for gardeners in the UK. I think we're a lot more likely to achieve certain goals rather than one organisation try and take it all on themselves. I think collaboration is always better than an isolation. We do that here in the US with our botanic gardens as well. They send out people and they have certain teams that go out on a regular basis or... Um, they may they might hitch up together because they're looking, as you mentioned, for a specific plant like Skyadopides. Yeah, and it's going to be great fun. So hopefully, with the link with Henrik now, we, could, we we're looking at going out on some joint trips, especially over to the Water Caucasus. Um, as we can imagine, it's not as easy as we thought it was going to be because of Russia and the conflict with Ukraine could have done without. But hopefully you know, Europe stays stable and we can go out through the Caucasus. I think the Caucasus has been vastly underexplored and that's mainly, if you look through the history, it's political and the political issues and it's only since the 90s that certain places like Azerbaijan have opened up for plant explorers. So but I do think there's going to be some key species and we need to be looking at their climate. So we're really going down to a Pacific area rather than just do what the plant hunters would have done, where they would just go into an area, collect everything. We, If we're going to go, we need to be very focused in order to achieve a goal. And I think that's the importance with plant collections going forward. So you mentioned three regions in this short conversation, the Caucasus, Azerbaijan, and uh, I believe it was Iran, Yeah. in terms of seed sourcing and collecting. And yet you're also tasked with managing and preserving, I believe you called it your, your heritage collection. So it's, yeah. it's kind of an interesting tension, isn't it, of the need for new plants? Yeah. So you think, uh, we, me and Henrik was having this long discussion about nurseries. You know, with the nursery trade, you think they're still using the same clones from the material that was probably originally brought in 100 years ago. <laughs> You know, we need to, they need to start having an understanding that we need to not only look at species, but genetics of that species and where they come from. And this is the important, we need some new DNA and new genetics into the nursery trade. And we need to perhaps look at better climatic zones to collect the same species. Otherwise, we're still going to get this high mortality rate. I don't know how you guys are out in the US, but here in the UK, our urban tree and young trees and the establishment rate is, it, you know, it's quite disappointing, especially on new construction sites. So, okay, that's down to poor maintenance and establishment. But I think we also need to look at the species and, you know, the clones of these species and where they're coming from. We need to give these trees the best chance they have. And I think that's definitely the future that the botanical gardens need to 
play a role, not just being a botanical garden for curiosity, where we have rare species to show off, but I think we need to also be there to show and basically stress test new species for the urban environment. Yeah, it seems like Q would then be the institution that disperses this information to towns and villages and cities throughout Europe, uh, if I'm following this correctly, because canopy restoration is so critical at this point. And if there's that high mortality rate, which we certainly deal with in the U.S., you know, we're always scratching our heads saying, you know, who's planting these trees that, uh, you know, can't seem to establish after a two or three year period? Yeah, definitely. That's the plan. And that would be the, you know, the long term goal is to hopefully be able to have all document. But me and Henrik, we're also in discussion about the need to make like a guidebook for going plant collecting in the modern era and what we should be looking at. Oh, that's an excellent idea. You were talking about the caucuses and I wonder how many plant species have been lost because people have not been able to go into those regions because of political strife. And if there are species there that would be far better at um, urban settings than than we have now. Oh, completely, definitely. But it's also quite interesting when you look at the political landscape and plant naming. So a lot of regions, when they, especially when they become independent from another country, like to have their own tree species. It's quite interesting. I was looking at Tilia today, and there's you get a bit of that. There's like a subspecies in Crimea, but there's the main species goes all the way through to Iran, and everyone wants their own type, but actually you know, they're all the same. So you've got that side of things as well. And it's quite interesting how the political landscape plays its role within plants and naming. But definitely, definitely the caucuses, it's going to be really interesting when, you know, what's out there to be found. You know, there's lots of places like Iran, Afghanistan, all through there. They're all very, you know, not a lot of plant collections have gone through there because of the political and war, you know, and there are definitely regions going forward, which were going to be more, you know, suitable to a warm and urban climate, just by looking at their climatic data alone, you can see there's going to be trees there that are going to be a lot more adaptable. It's a lot to be said for going and looking in these areas. It's just interesting to think of humans scrambling all over the planet to try to assist the migration and hurry up and get things growing where, you know, to, to save ourselves, essentially. Yeah, I know. It's it's quite interesting. I think it's only because of, uh, it's gaining more momentum now is because people want to offset carbon. I've had lots of interesting conversations with business leaders because they're trying to offset carbon. And it's trying to explain to them, you can't just stick a tree in the ground and that's the end of it and you have offset that carbon. Right. So, you know, it's dealing with them and trying to explain that, you know, species selection for the site of where you're planting is vitally important. You know, you can't just stick it in the ground and think you've done a good thing. It's about the establishment as well. But also in the UK, we've got a big problem with, we've got a skill shortage. You know, there's not young people coming through now to how to look after these trees. So that's another side that needs to be also addressed is, you know, there's a massive skill shortage and then we've got a very little uptake of young people coming into the industry and that's a, you know that's a crying shame as well and it's quite a worry that we're not going to have people to look after these trees we're planting you know you're talking about corporations throwing money at you to plant trees but it would be really nice i think if they were to throw money at you for the research that needs to go into tree planting this is the thing this is trying to get the balance right you know that We've got a big thing in the UK about planting numbers and everyone wants to plant thousands or millions of trees. The, that's not, that shouldn't be the focus at the moment. The focus should be on research and understanding what species are going to be most appropriate in order to establish, rather than just throwing loads of money at a problem that you think is not going to go away. Because if you're looking at trees for carbon storage, every tree that dies that's young is a negative to that theory, really. So you're throwing loads of money for these young trees to be planted. But if they don't establish, it's a negative to the carbon storage because as soon as they die, they start to release carbon. And then you've got the vehicle movement, you've got everything to put that tree into place. It doesn't work. The calculations don't make up. So, yeah, it's trying to get people to understand that it's not a silver bullet that's going to resolve the problem that everyone thinks it is. There's a lot more that needs to be put in place first and a lot of more scientific understanding before we can, you know, run ahead and 
plant thousands of trees to try and help the planet. Um, we're finding here the smaller we plant, the better they take and the quicker they establish. And are you seeing that in your location too, where uh, you find that it's better to plant smaller trees and uh, perhaps even bare root trees versus uh, bald and burlap or container type and things that are bigger versus smaller? Yeah, definitely. I definitely agree. The younger the tree goes out in the landscape where it's possible, you will get a better establishment rate. So Tony Kirkham brought in the air pot system into the nursery. So all our trees are grown in air pots. So we have a very established root before we go out and we don't get the pot bound because of the pruning from the air pot. So we get a very good establishment rate with that. So that's helped us here at Kew. But I've also noticed that when we have brought in like extra heavy standards and very big trees, they do, yeah, they struggle to establish. And then you think that makes sense because when that tree's in the nursery, it's got all its feed, all its water, it need, it wants for nothing. That tree gets everything really looked after. It's in a cotton wool environment, as we would say in the UK. We then move from the nursery, go and stick it in the landscape and expect it to survive. You know, it's, it's not going to work. So I do think if you can plant smaller, they're more likely to adapt to their new environment and that stress because they haven't been in the nursery for so long. So they're a bit more adaptable. You think when you're putting that extra, extra heavy standard, it's probably been the nursery for 15, 20 years growing, especially here in the UK because of how slow everything is to grow. So you think it's been really looked after, we pick it up, we stick it in the landscape, and then we all scratch our head and wonder why it's not establishing because no one's watered it since. You know, that's the problem. So, yeah, it's a real big, it's a real big issue. And I think going forward, I think that needs to be looked at you know, there needs to be more research in irrigation and establishment rates of different sizes of nursery stock. That would be a really good research to run is where you can plant, like you say, a bare root and then a pot and then an extra heavy stand and see what establishment rates you get on one side. That would be a good study to hopefully prove the theory, as it were. I know in the city of Philadelphia, we use bare root most of the time because it does establish much faster and it doesn't have other soil to have to hold it in place. It just grows very easily in the soil that it's been put into. Yeah. And you're right about water. That's the number one reason why trees die here in the U.S. also, that the lack of water in the first several years of its life in its location. Yeah, and it's, it's so frustrating. So my son's school, even though we live in Kew, we live in Kew Gardens, my son's school is a bit of an underprivileged school. So my wife run... Um, a cake sale to raise some money for some plants just to make the playground look nice really and we brought some small conifers put in a planting bed and I, all I kept saying to the teachers and everything that the police can you water them they didn't water them and it's this weird idea where we expect trees to be stuck in the ground not water them or care for them and they're supposed to grow you know they died within I don't know eight weeks because they just dried out. And that was the one thing I kept saying, please water them, and they didn't. So I think us humans are a bit harsh on trees. You think we want them for our own benefit and our own benefit only, really. And we're bringing them from their native environment where, you know, they're established and through evolution, you know, they can grow there. We choose them, we bring them back, we grow them in a nursery and then stick them in an urban landscape and then wonder why they die. It's quite a, you think it's quite a hard life for an urban tree in fairness, and then you've got road salts, glyphosates and everything else that goes along with the urban environment. And that's why I think we need to look at real hardy species. Like Almacy, they're quite good. You know, they're quite a tough tree. Say it again, please. Almacy, elms, most of the elm family, they're really, you know, they're tough old boots. You know, they will establish well. We've got some really nice Salcova carpinifolias here, and they establish so well, but they're not, obviously, they're not, widely available in the nursery trade. But, they're, you know, they're a really good tree and established really well. They don't need a lot of caring for. And it's like the same with old Macy parviflora. That grows really well here at Kew, and that's one of the species that I'm looking at for a future urban tree. So I've arranged for two of our collections to go to Richmond Local Authority. So they're going to plant them out in the urban landscape just so we can see how they establish in the urban landscape and not just here at Kew, but they look like they should be good trees going forward. Yeah, well, ours do very well here in, in the US. Yeah, yeah it's a good city. tree out there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but they they can seed in quite a bit. That's one of the things that people are looking at so that they don't 
take over the native areas. Yeah, and I think for us, they'd be lucky to do that in an urban street in London. Um, it'd be interesting <laughs> to see how they establish. There's a bit too much tarmac in the way. But uh, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how they do. You know, it's not used at the moment. If you don't mind, because you mentioned carpinus or hornbeam. And yep. could you just share that, expand on that a little bit? I, I'd love to spend a little time just, you know, as we say in the States, being tree nerds and uh, talking about favorite trees. And I remember, again, Dr. Schoeman kind of, I think the tree at the top of his list was Acer. And here's a mispronunciation. It's trident maple, bergianum. Mm -hmm. Bergianum, yeah. Did I get that? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm good today. Um, <laughs> but... Tell us again about the UK's relationship to hornbeam because it, it is a favorite species of, of mine. I'm indulging myself here. Yeah, and no, the hornbeam is one of probably, well, we, it's a bit awkward. It's a native or if it's naturalized, but it's one of the main landscape trees that we have in the UK, very well established. And it, you know, we use it in various different forms in the landscape. You know, a lot of nurseries pleat them now so people can have the, the modern garden and have straight lines. So it's one of our most important trees. But, you know, you only got to look at Epping Forest and all the lapsed pollards of the hornbeams that they're doing. You know, they're amazing trees. And they were so they were used for timber. You know, they were a useful tree, and that's what they were used for. That's why they were pollarded. And a lot of their foliage was actually used for animal feeding, you know, going back. So, you know, they're a hard-working tree, and that's why it got a good history within Europe. But you look at its distribution, it goes all the way through the Caucasus. So, you know, for us here at Kew, we could, that's an easy tree to start look at collecting data on. So we could look at a tree that's grown in the UK of a hornbeam, and then we can measure it throughout different parts in Europe and then see which trees are adapting best to the dry climate. So one of those hornbeams quite easy to study because it's got such a broad range. And the same with field maple. That's another tree that's not planted often in the UK anymore, but that's another good tree. And then that goes all the way through to Iran. So you think how many ranges that field maple will hit that you could actually seek seed and provenance from to then start researching to see how these trees adapt to different climatic stresses. Is that Acer Campestre? Yeah, Acer Campestre. Yeah, yeah. Acer Campestre, yeah. Yeah, it's a really nice tree. Uh, Mainly in the UK, it's always known to be a hedgerow tree. Right. So in, in agriculture or out in the countryside, you often see Acer campestri in the, you know, in the field edges, and it's just been overlooked. And again, it doesn't grow too big, and again, that'd be a great urban tree, but people just aren't planting it. And it's got amazing foliage in the winter, you know, in, into autumn, it goes really yellow. So it's a real hard-working tree, but it's just often been overlooked. So it's just trying to bring this to the forefront of the nurseries, but also you've got to change culture. So you've got to look at changing the tree officer's eyes. So in the UK, the tree officers would be in charge of what gets planted in their borough, as it were, or in their state. So it's down to those tree officers. So it's changing their opinions as well to also put pressure on the nurseries. Because when we speak to nurseries, they said it's a supply and demand. So if there's, no, if there's no demand, they won't supply. So it's trying to change everyone to start looking at these different species, which are a lot more appropriate to urban planting, rather than silver birch. We love planting them in new houses and estates in the UK. You know, if you get a new development of all these new properties, they'll plant silver birch. They're never, they're never established. They just sit there, look very ill, and look very sad for themselves until they die. So, you know, it's trying to change people's opinions of what trees should go in. That's a really interesting discussion. And uh, our tree advisories, we call them tree advisories in our townships and boroughs, those lists might not be touched for 20 years before they change them. And it's only been recently that we've had tree advisories where they'll recommend trees that are not what we classify as an invasive species. Yeah. So, you know, that, that becomes a real problem. And Acer campestre, we call it here the hedge maple, is, is a really good, solid tree, as you're mentioning, and can withstand drought and intolerance and being shoehorned into a little space. It does really well. So, yeah, it does. And it, it's so overlooked. And I don't know why. It's always been overlooked. Yeah, it's a good, hardworking tree. 
and it's something that people need to pay you know more attention to we want these trees to establish and live a long life for them to be a benefit to society canopy cover urban cooling carbon storage these live fast die young trees you know they're not gonna they're not gonna do that things like birch we need to start thinking more long term rather than just a quick short fix and i think especially in the uk that's a cultural thing but that goes down to the landscape architects there needs to be a lot more discussion with people who are choosing plants. It should be a lot wider and it should include landscape architects, town planners. So, you know, even with the town planners, they can, you know, they can put in protocols and documentation. So they say, right, you need to plant these trees in order to establish. We've got a big thing in the UK about only planting natives. A lot of our natives are... They're not, you know, they're not thriving. You know, they're only just surviving. So look at ash dieback. You know, we're losing thousands of ash yeah. every month. Yes. But yet you will go to some boroughs where you've got a new building scheme where only want natives planted. We're getting very short on what palettes we can choose from, which is a native tree. For instance, you can't replant really an oak in London now because of oak processory moth. You know, that's got really irritant hairs and that causes dermatitis and health issues so you can't re- so you can't plant an oak because then you've got horse chestnut that gets leaf miner and pseudo syringa canker so you can't really plant a horse chestnut so if you take away oak ash horse chestnut you're getting very low on your list of what trees build up the actual native flora of the uk so you know it's a very difficult time but also quite fun in some ways to try and change opinions and i think that's why we need a younger generation which is a lot more diverse with a lot of different cultures and influence in order to create this as an industry. You know, we need to go away from how we've always been seen as just chainsaw slinging predominantly men to more a bit of a more diverse group in order to, you know, manage not only trees, but the public's culture and perception of trees. It's a, quite a big thing at the moment. You know, you're talking about having little diversity and every, every living thing seems to migrate we forget as human beings that we are made to migrate and yet our boundaries from countries affect us and don't allow that migration to happen, which unless we have a war like right now where the Ukrainians are moving to other places, but plants do the same thing or need to do the same thing in order for to survive. And they rely on animals and humans and living creatures to carry them to where they need to go. And I don't think we talk about this enough that migration is a normal process that occurs because of things like climate change and change in water, for example, as you're talking about. If things start to dry out in an area, you're going to have to go for species that can handle drier conditions. And we don't think about this. We don't talk about it enough. I know scientists do and yourself, people who are looking at the trees on a regular basis, but on the, on the whole, a lot of people just don't understand it, especially politicians. They don't understand it at all. No, and it, you know, you're talking about migration. For us at Kew, the beech trees in Kew are really struggling. Um, it's drought-related. Also, mm-hmm. you know, visitor numbers, we can have 2 million pre-pandemic, 2.2 million people. That causes a lot of ground compaction. Beach, Vegas, Savatica. The European common beach is very sensitive to that and you get things like Meripolis or Cretsmeria, honey fungus. You know, you get a multiple variety of disease and fungi that will make jump and make that their host because the tree is stressed. So, you know, for us, we now, I wouldn't plant a common beach with provenance from the UK. If I was, it'd be from the drier ranges of the Caucasus. But for us, what grows better for us is Fagus orientalis, the oriental beach. That grows very well. Um, that's low altitude through the Caucasus. And then you've got the uh, natural hybridization, which is cross uh, Turnica. That grows really well as well. It's that is Fagus Savatica cross Orientalis. And that grows very well here at Kew. That's the amazing thing with these plant collections like Kew. It allows people like myself to have that understanding because I can see these trees next to each other. Because of how Kew is led out taxonomically on the Bethnal and Hooker system, all my trees are grouped together. So they're all in families. So for me, I can then look, that's Fagus sabbatica over there, that's dying, but that's Orientalis, and that's that's amazing. It's got a clean leaf, no dead wood, it's got a really healthy canopy, and that's Turnica, which is the cross, and that's grown the same as Orientalis. 
So then you can have that understanding. Whereas, you know, for other people that are managing trees that don't have such a wide, diverse tree collection as we do here at Kew, you wouldn't have that understanding. Now, I can walk around the world quite quickly through my tree collection, and that's why I can have a deeper understanding of where and what species and what zones and climatic zones, which are going to be for the future, because they're all here. One conversation that we often circle back to, I think it's actually how Eva and I got started to a certain extent with this podcast, is the idea, and you said you're coming out of a commercial arboriculture background. Yeah. To have arborists more engaged with the conversations that we're having now in terms of understanding the immediacy of the climate catastrophe and what that means for how they operate their business. And what I come back to more and more, Kevin, is the thought that, you know, track tree risk assessment qualification, that we're looking at established trees and we're making recommendations in terms of the hazard. And I am starting to think that International Society of Arboriculture might want to consider a credential that is focused on the canopy restoration piece. So that arborists, like you just mentioned, understanding climatic zones, understanding uh, assisted migration, uh, working with their clients to plant a few trees after the removals have been completed. And, And you know as well as I do, having a tree company means a lot of expensive equipment. So it's hard to balance the numbers and make it a profitable exercise. But, and of course the labor issue as well, but to be every bit as engaged with planting as you are with pruning and removals and fertilization and insect and disease management, seems like the industry could really become, ironically enough, a big player in tree planting because arboriculture includes the nurturing and planting of trees and not just pruning removals and fertilization. Yeah, it does. And it's something that I've always gone on about. It's, yeah, you know, I'm very lucky that I made that transition. You know, if I was to have this conversation with you guys 20 years ago when I started my career, I was only interested in climbing trees and the biggest one and using all the shiny equipment. (laughs) And it's trying to get them to understand. I We have Bartlett's, obviously, UK, and I had their apprentices in on uh, on Wednesday. And I was talking about that exactly the same thing with their apprentices. They spent a day here at Kew, and I took them out in the Arboretum, I showed them the nursery, but I was having those exactly the same conversations with them. I think we need to have more of a focus within an industry. It's not just about taking them out. You know, we should be proud to put them back in and what we put back in and why. And I think that's where the, the understanding within our boreal culture needs to go but it's the same with soils you know I do a lot of work on the soils here at Kew and I I manage the trees what I sort of call holistically so if I've got a tree that's going into decline I won't send my climbing team in to take all the dead wood out I generally look and study and understand what that decline is being caused by I know here at Kew because of the site and my soil conditions it's going to be soil compaction so generally for us we I can fence the tree off mulch it and let nature deal with it or I can go in invasive and use an air spade we do quite a lot of work now with a geo inject so that's your matic like a yamatic pin that we go through a bit like the old terror vent let a shot of air through fractured soil but with that we're um, injecting biochar so because I've got this high leaching point because of my soil structure we're now basically vertical mulching with biochar and have that as like a sponge so it sits in the soil column like a sponge and attract and holds the water and nutrients in there long enough for the trees to then make the most of it. And actually, interesting, we've turned some trees around that were looking very sick. There's a, a buckeye, one of the US buckeyes, I can't remember which one off the top of my head, that's down by our lake and it was going into severe decline. And we inoculated the soil with biochar, we broke up the soil with a with the geo-inject. And then even then, it took 18 months to see a change. So this time last year, I was, even, I, I was thinking about taking the tree out and I, I held my guns back as much as I was under pressure because it looked a bit messy in the landscape. I held my guns and now it's actually turned round and it's actually producing an inner canopy. Now, I know 
from being a practitioner that when you've got a tree that can produce an inner canopy, if we used to reduce that canopy down to that new, if we reduce that distance from root to shoot, I'm going to get an increase in bigger again because I'm reducing distance from root to shoot for the vascular system. So I know I will get a good flush. So that's what we're looking at managing that tree there. And then we can keep that tree, you know, here at Q. When I give tours and talks to the Arboretum to fellow professionals, that's what I keep trying to explain to them. We shouldn't be just cutting them down. We need to understand, you know, why trees are going into decline. And nine times out of ten, it's going to be soil conditions. We can get our soil conditions right. We can then get that tree to grow. And once that tree's growing and establishing, you know, we're on the right track. And it's trying... The interesting thing with managing trees, especially as I do here at Kew, is trying to identify trees before they go too, too far into decline. There is a happy medium. Sometimes they go too far no matter what we can do, that tree is, unfortunately, it's the end of its time. And also, I think it goes into the tree's biology as well. So you, you're more likely to get success with things like a ring porous, like an oak, just because they're more durable and they're harder, even though their vessels are more delicate, but their morphology allows you to do more crown reductions. Whereas you've got things like Aeschylus, which is diffusible, you, you don't tend to get such an good success rate but I have had good success rate but not as good as I would have on a big durable tree like an oak they definitely seem to be more adaptable and you've got more chance of bringing the canopy down and get beach you can't really reduce beach or work on beach generally once beach starts going to decline it's very hard to bring them back round. With the inoculation with the biochar is that being delivered as a liquid suspension? No so ours is coming in granule so the okay. biochar is coming in granule. Um, I, I do want at some point, when when I get time, is to put biochar in, but then do a soil drench with something like compost tea to see if, what that brings to the party, because then you're, you're preloading that biochar rather than letting rainwater and nutrients naturally, you're preloading it. So to see if that would give a tree a boost. We have got a compost tea brewing system here at Kew. But again, it's it's getting the time. As much as I want to play around and do lots of research, I still have my day-to-day -day job to do. So sure. You just need to have somebody follow you around with a a pad, paper, or a, um, a microphone and just uh, be able to transcribe all your documentation into a science research paper. It'd be nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> It'd be very nice. No, but, you know, I think it should be part of the role when you become a head of a tree collection. You know, I've got an amazing resource, and I, I think it's often undervalued and underused, so I think that's the importance of the future of botanical gardens, is to, you know, help the urban tree canopy and not just to be portrayed as a pretty garden that you pay lots of money to walk around. Well, I appreciate your comments about uh, working with the soils as well, because that's such a huge part of the picture. You know, pruning dead limbs is, is wonderful, but being uh, at ground level with the air spade, fracturing soil, introducing biochar, in, introducing soil biology enhancements, and, uh, and then a, a good semi-composted wood chips or something like that, really completes the package. So thank you for articulating that. Now, yeah, do you know the best results we get, believe it or not, is with wood chip. Put the wood chip down, leave it to break down, and then air till it. So we would run the air spade at about 75 PSI, so it's quite a low rate, and we just turn it over, and that turning of the soil like you would in a veg patch, just that tilling in makes the most incredible difference what I've found over the years, if I was to decompact tree pit and not fence it, and the public walk over, within two years, three years, that compaction is back and is worse. So that air tilling is the most important thing in order to keep that turning over. You will cause some damage to the mycorrhiza, but I think the overall benefit outweighs that minor loss. And we're not going deep, it's literally just the top 20 mil. Got a big oak here called Quercus castanifolia, the chestnut leafed oak. It's our biggest tree by volume. And many years ago, it used to be just have a mulch circle around it. I just fenced it. That's all I did. So that's a trophy tree. So it's measured. It's one of the biggest trees in the UK, the biggest of its kind in the UK in cultivation. So it gets measured every four years. For 10 years previous to fencing, it was static. It was 35 metres tall. It didn't grow. It didn't do anything. We fenced it off. 
the next time they measured it, which was four years later, went from 35 to 38. And that tree was planted in 1848. So it's a mature tree. And if you were here at Kew, I could show you on the branch and you could see the year we fenced it. Wow. Because the growth builds up. And that's the soil conditions. No, that's all we did was fence it. Wow. That also shows what humans can do, the destruction that humans can do. Oh, completely, especially the soil structure. Yeah, you know, yeah. Everyone, no one thinks about the, you know, the actual physical damage that's caused to trees when the soil's compacted. You know, it's probably the biggest thing in the urban landscape as well. Yeah, well, we have our favourite question that we have to ask, and that is your affinity for a particular tree or group of trees that speak to you on many levels. So I've listened to lots of your podcasts. Everyone says it's their most difficult question to answer and it is to be fair so if I was to go back to my childhood and when I used to watch my father climb my favorite tree especially in my early commercial career would definitely without fail would be the purple beech I love that tree it's probably one of the big trees I climbed first and worked on uh, so I've always had a bit of an admirer for that but in recent years since being at Q the tree we just spoke about Quercus castanifolia is my favourite, one, because when I first come to Kew, that was the biggest tree and I remember climbing and it took us five days to deadwood it and it was a monstrous task and it's quite intimidating. So for that, from being a climber and going into what I do now, that tree will always be my favourite. And interestingly, as that led me into do what I do now and have a passion for looking at trees and climate, because that comes from Iran and it comes from the Capcom Sea and yet it's Kew's best growing oak. So, and that's what led me into the path that I'm researching and looking into now. You are truly a universal gentleman. <laughs> Thank you. It's very kind. Yeah, this has been great. We really appreciate your time. Very inspirational. It's been great meeting you guys. It's been really good fun. We, we Keep wish doing you... your great work, Kevin. Yes, Thank we wish you. you the very best. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> Take care, Kevin. Take care. Have a good weekend. You too. Bye-bye. The Planetrillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Oh, my God.